and welcome to the Common Good Podcast, the podcast that showcases the very best of Glasgow Caledonian University and how the institution, its staff and its research benefits people and communities both at home and overseas. My name is Craig Telfer and today I am joined by Professor John Lennon, the Director of the Moffat Centre at GCU, to talk about Glasgow's tourism industry and what the easing of lockdown restrictions will mean to the city. John, always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much for joining me today. No problem at all, Craig, and uh, it's a serious subject, so you fire in. <laughs> so we'll start with just an overview of tourism in Glasgow. This might be a bit of a, a thick question, but why do people want to visit the city? What does it have to offer? So if we set that in a date context, up until March 2020, I can answer that. The, and the figures for 2019 will tell you that before COVID, the city offered the combination of leisure, business, conference and meetings, nightlife, attractions, and that thing young people talk about, which I don't understand, called vibe. Yeah, it was a fashionable place. It's a place synonymous with music, with arts and cultural industries. Um, but it also has the fourth busiest arena by ticket sales in the form of SSE Hydro uh, globally. So, you know, we had what in tourism terms is called the balanced portfolio. You want a mix of leisure and business meetings and conferences so that you're not dependent on one particular segment. Mm -hmm. You want a mix of international and domestic tourists. So if one goes down, the other compensates. But COVID and the impacts of trying to contain the infection obviously closed a lot of our businesses, decimated our hotel and other forms of accommodation and closed down our attractions. If you restrict transportation and movement in a population, not just at a national level, but internationally, you, you impact tourism and everybody agrees tourism and travel is one of the most affected uh, sectors in the world economy. So the, the world before COVID was a very different world mm -hmm. uh, and it was a successful world and Glasgow was champing at Edra's lead, but Scotland was led by two very busy cities, Edinburgh and Glasgow. That was the tourism pattern uh, for the nation. So prior to the pandemic, John, how many people would visit Glasgow on an annual basis? Oh, that's a good one. You got me there. I didn't have that thing <laughs> off the top. <laughs> I'll have to look that up as we talk, um, but I will have that somewhere. But keep going. Keep me with another well, one. I'll ask a different question then, John. You mentioned Edinburgh there, and I know there's a sort of a rivalry perhaps between the two cities. How did Glasgow compare to Edinburgh? When I think about tourism in Scotland, you automatically think about Edinburgh Castle, Scots Monument. How do the two cities compare to one another? Edinburgh has the advantage in the sense of it's the capital and it has the parliament. Um, and with that goes a lot of civil servants uh, and also coincidentally a lot of head offices of uh, state agencies, but also commercial companies. All of that adds to the appeal. Couple that with the world's most successful arts and cultural festival, the Edinburgh Festival, and you have uh, a very strong formula. And Edinburgh has been very good at festivals and events and rolling them out, whether it's Christmas or whether it's book festivals, etc. So what you have in Glasgow, however, is a, to my mind, a much more 
happening and vibrant city that combines uh, leisure breaks for uh, lots of customers where you can get great heritage, great culture, but also you're really close to great countryside. 40 minutes, you're in Loch Lomond uh, and you can get away to some of the most dramatic West Coast scenery really quickly. But Glasgow has been very good at building the conference and meeting sector. Uh, and that sector has been award-winning for the past 10 years. The Convention Bureau has been really punching above its weight. If you combine that with exhibitions and, and general business and corporate appeal, you can see why so many private hotel companies choose to buy and develop properties in Glasgow. The growth has been phenomenal from less than 30 before 1984 to in excess of 150 after 2018. So that growth, you know, the, the private sector follows where the consumers are. So whilst we don't exceed Edinburgh's international tourism arrivals, we do exceed uh, and, and we do uh, perform very strongly on the domestic front, or we did do until COVID came along in March 2020 and knocked the stuffing out of what we know about tourism. And, and that's quite important because what we have now are cities, all of the five cities in Scotland, facing, uh, if you like, an unequal COVID impact. Because where we've seen the recovery, it has been a recovery of the rural, uh, coastal highlands and islands of Scotland. Mm -hmm. The cities have recovered much more slowly. And at the bottom of that recovery chart is Glasgow. Okay, then why is Glasgow recovering slowly then compared to the other cities like Dundee, Aberdeen, Edinburgh? So Edinburgh is really the star here. Um, once again, we come back to the factor elements, which are the capital, the civil servants, the, the, even the rump of the festival, which they're running at the moment, has made the city busy, not just with day visitors, but also with overnight. Some recent stats were saying that um, Edinburgh's performance was now getting close to 60% occupancy. Um, as you know, Moffat Centre does a lot of that data. Mm, yes. and, and that looks good, but you have to remember that normally in August, Edinburgh would be doing 100% and the rates would be through the roof. Um, so, you know, you, you'd be paying 350 a night easily for a mid-market three-star hotel, uh, four-star hotel. So I think what you've got to understand is 60% looks good, but you're comparing it to 2020 when everything was shut. The problem for Glasgow, which was your question, is that the tier two ranking, which it basically meant we stayed in lockdown and we stayed in restricted conditions for longer than any of the other cities, really put us behind in terms of tourism recovery. And that, of course, rings in people's minds uh, and they uh, also make decisions on where to visit based on emotion. So people are going to the rural uh, parts of Scotland, the Highlands, because they think it's open air. I can't get COVID here. I'm on the beach. There's a wind blowing. It must be healthy. None of these people are epidemiologists, but it's quite understandable how they're making decisions because it's on the basis of emotion. And that's how people choose their holidays. It's an emotional and economic choice rather than often sunk in logic, if you like, and, and realism. So 
Glasgow's recovery has been slower and it's been particularly hit by our reliance on business and meetings and conferences because that area is amongst the last to recover, not quite the last, but the conferences and exhibitions, which had been such a big part of the success of the Scottish campus down there, where you've got the, S, uh, the Hydro and you've got the SECC, the, the, the symbiosis between all those venues on the Clyde was absolutely fantastic. Mm -hmm. But that conference business has dropped like a stone. Coupled with that, business and corporate markets aren't returning at the same speed. The city isn't that busy because people are still choosing to work from home. They found new ways to work with the technology over the period of the pandemic. And of course, it, it, that has changed the way we look at work and behave at work. And if we can see that productivity is equally as high if somebody spends only two days a week in the office then the businesses start to question do they need that very large high street office if a lot of this can be done and and that business market whether it's tourism or it's residents who are working in Glasgow and coming in from the regions if that's hit then that hits the retail sector, that hits the hospitality sector. And coupled with that, the nighttime economy of Glasgow, which is pretty critical, about 18,000 jobs, is the area that has been worst hit because that one, the recovery of clubs, the recovery of live music venues has been the slowest across the board. And uh, you're starting to see some green shoots now, but it's very little and it's very late. So those guys have been in furlough and in closure for 18 months plus. Now, think of any business that's had no revenue stream coming in for a year and a half. The debts they're accruing, um, the kind of difficulties they're going to face in terms of debt restructuring mm -hmm. and getting back into the black. Coupled with that, what we have seen, it's early days yet, is that the clubs haven't been packed out just because they're open. And of course, I have to say government bears a responsibility here because we didn't have clear instructions on COVID passports or evidence of double vaccination before you entered places. It was very much left to the venue to resolve this. And of course, it's like tourism is like any business. If there's doubt, if you create uncertainty with a hint of unsafety, lack of safety about it, you will create well, maybe we won't do it now, we'll go somewhere else. Mm -hmm. So that hadn't been thought through enough uh, and the nighttime economy suffered as a consequence. And that, again, is a big part of the appeal of Glasgow to the leisure market as well as the conference and meetings market. So you need all these uh, parts of the engine running at full pace in order to make the, the city, uh, the congruence and the synergy of the city come together. It's very interesting that, John. It's almost like a thread. You pull one thread and everything begins to unravel there. But what you also said there touched a number of points that I was going to talk on. And it's about reinvigorating the tourism industry. As you mentioned there, you can't just simply lift the restrictions and go back to how things were in February 2020. As you said there, the clubs are open, but they're not full. So what is the approach that we can take to get them back full again? Is it something a bit more nuanced we have to do? Can you explain that? Mm. Well, if we, if we take clubs, it seemed to me it was quite obvious we needed some form of passport or certification to verify that people were 
safe to enter. Um, and you know that would have taken a doubt away from people. Um, leaving that at the local level to resolve was not the right uh, approach. Now, it's further complicated by the primary market for clubs tend to be young people who have the lowest rates of vaccination. So the conundrum is, you might think, well, that's fine. The young people will go and fill the clubs. But actually, there are other folk who go to clubs as well, sort of not so young, not quite as grey as the guy you're interviewing, but men in your own age bracket, you know. So you, you've got to take away the doubt for all people about this. And I think that's very important that we get that right for some of the events that are coming, like COP26, for example. That's scheduled to take place in November. Uh, and what we want to do there is not only make sure that there's a great welcome and there's a great openness and, and, uh, and, and keenness to get delegates to explore our city, its heritage, uh, its nightlife, but also to ensure, as far as they're concerned, that everything is safe. Because getting those conferences back is, is absolutely crit critical. Back in 2019, Glasgow hosted around 500 conferences, attracting more than 140,000 delegates, 150 million pounds economic impact. Now, from July 21 to December 21, there are 36 conferences booked. That's a massive drop. Now, there are good future conference reservations, but you're going to see hybrid conferences. Mm -hmm. You're going to yeah. see exhibitions where people are there in person, but there'll be a, a, a lot of tech in, in operation to ensure that you can attend virtually. Uh, and that has a very different economic impact from a, a delicate rocking up in person, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. So we have to not only make it a, welf a welcoming place, but we also have to understand that we have to put people's mind at ease. And if they have to ask a question about safety or regulation or infection or vaccination, you've already lost one in three because they won't ask the question and they'll decide not to come. It's very interesting stuff you're talking there, John, about hybrid events. As we did a podcast a couple of months ago with Julie Duncan, of course, who's the head of conference and events at the university. And she said that hybrid events, they are going to be the future. How can they be economically viable then to a city like Glasgow? Yeah, so we have to um, we have to understand that you can monetize attendance uh, at things online. Th there is quite a lot of good research on that about music events online. Uh, it's never going to replace the revenue that artists can get, for example, from touring and doing live venues and big arenas. Um, but during the COVID period. We saw quite a lot of quite innovative stuff being done in the US and in Europe, where people were joining online and paying online. Indeed, Celtic Connections did a, a little bit of this. Uh, it was quite fast put together. And I have to say, I was quite impressed with some of the stuff they did and some of the, the levels of purchase that were engendered. Now, there might well have been a sympathy factor going there where people were thinking, I've got to help these artists out because none of the venues are open. But it showed me, and I've seen it in other stuff that bands have done and classical music have done, that you can get people to purchase for an online experience. And we are, we're just going to have to make that part of the mix in commercial and revenue generating events 
conferences and festivals. You can do a lot of interesting stuff with chat rooms, with background, with, you know, the way I've seen savvy um, musicians doing this is back of house footage, special interviews with, you know, the, the lead singer or the, mm -hmm. the, 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 main, the main opera conductor, so that you add more to the conference offer for the online delegate than if you were there in person. So we have to be quite imaginative and creative about how we think about conferences and how we think about integrating tech, because this is a direction uh, and a road that we're going down and we're not gonna turn off it. We, I don't think we're gonna come back to the kind of levels of business and conference travel we saw in the past. It is different to leisure travel. Where we've seen the recovery in the airports, that recovery, which everyone's getting excited about, which is slight, is leisure traffic. It's people going to the handful of countries you can get into and out of relatively easily. If you want to write off 300 quid in testing um, on an exit and entry on your, your holiday for your family of four, multiply that up, you know? So... I think the leisure traffic has recovered because there's pent up demand, 18 months of not getting our dose of Mediterranean sun. But the business travel uh, is a much harder one because businesses are looking hard at travel and, and those budgets. And they're looking at a difficult post pandemic environment mm -hmm. and they're looking at how they can manage costs. And also they're looking about their environmental reporting in their final accounts so the days of i think you know unfettered global travel for executives as they move from one conference and exhibition to another staying at lots of great hotels i do think those times have changed and indeed the university itself is putting in place you know a sustainable travel policy where we're trying to favor rail travel uh, above air for example and, and above other formats so i think it's not just a university movement. It's a movement across sectors. It's a movement across private and public, across the third sector also. Well, COP26 earlier, John, how important is this event in reinvigorating tourism and conferences and events in Glasgow? Yeah, yeah. It's a very important bellwether that Glasgow is open again uh, and that it's safe and that it can manage large conferences. Now, in the past, none of that would have been in doubt because Glasgow had a reputation for managing lots of scale conferences and doing them very well. It had good integrated accommodation availability and it had a city that was walkable with lots of venues and restaurants uh, and a good nightlife there, which is all part of the mix. Even if you choose to only do it one night, it's great to know it's there. So I think getting COP right is very important and it's a chance for us to show the best side of Glasgow. And I do think, you know, there are inherent challenges there. If you walk around the city centre, you're looking at a lot of vacant shop fronts yeah. in certain of our streets. If you, if you look hard, you're looking at a, a fair bit of litter and a fair bit of uh, cleaning up that has to be done. So we need to move fast on getting that stuff in place. And I do understand the public services are challenged by the pandemic because they're facing a lot of absentees as people are exposed uh, and are reporting, you know, um, contact, etc. So that frustrates efforts to make things right. 
However, on the plus side, a lot of the hoteliers and a lot of the suppliers, the restauranteurs are very excited about this, and they're going to be pushing hard to make sure this works uh, pr pretty well. And I think, you know, that, that's important because these controlled events and getting it right are, are going to be critical. And this is a big world conference. There will be talk about this, not just in Scotland, but across the UK and beyond. And it's a very important subject matter as well, which, of course, is synonymous with travel and tourism. Now, in a recent article, John, for The Herald, you wrote that it's going to take years for the industry to recover from the pandemic. Could you explain why it's going to take so long for things to get back to normal? And I'm putting normal in inverted commas there. It, I mean, there are a combination of factors at work here, I suppose. And it's what we talked about before, the interconnectedness yeah. of visitors and wider aspects of the city economy. The buoyant urban destination helps the strapped retail, hospitality and nighttime economy. Fashionable music and events industries, good venues, great theatre, all of that stuff has been bit decimated and those individual businesses have to recover. So whether it's cinema chains or whether it's theatres, they've all faced 18 months of no revenue. So uh, getting them to come back to full strength is not an overnight issue. So you, you're starting, if you like, with one hand tied behind your back. You're also facing, as we saw, a recovery of leisure tourism it's certainly in terms of outbound air travel, Scots leaving to go elsewhere, but also leisure tourism in Scotland, predominantly English and Scots visitors who ain't visiting cities. By and large, they're visiting rural island, coastal Scotland and the Highlands. And that's great because those areas need a boost as well. But for those emotional reasons that I've talked about previously, they're still looking at cities and wondering, mm, is this the best place to go? It's going to be very crowded. Those venues I used to go to and see fringe affairs or see bands. I'm not too sure about that. I might put my parents or partner at risk. So there's all that anxiety there that we, we haven't, haven't captured. And if we're dependent only on a domestic market, i.e. Scots and English, and our international market to Scotland, three and a half million a year, is decimated. It's now less than 100,000. The problem there is those guys spent money. They spent more per capita than domestic tourists do. Um, so even if you've got domestic return, the expenditure per capita will not be so great. So the impact, the economic impact from tourism will fall. And I think, the, you know, that, that strange rebalancing of tourism, which is now much more buoyant domestic demand, England and Scots, and limited international uh, inbound, uh, means that, that, how shall I say, the industry has to rebalance and accommodate that, mm -hmm. that their demands are different to what we'd previously known. So we have to think hard about urban locations and how we revive them. Um, and I think you look at Glasgow as we do, we live in Glasgow, we work in Glasgow, and you think, why is this city different to an Amsterdam model? Why is it like the Polo still, where very few people live in the center of Glasgow? You throw, uh, you, you look, look down the, the main uh, shopping thoroughfares 
whether in Edinburgh or Glasgow, uh, whether it's Prince's Street or Blank Moment, what's it, the prime shopping street in Glasgow? Cannon Street. Yeah, so whether it's Prince's Street or Buchanan Street, the amount of people who are living above shops is minimal. The amount of city centre population we've got living uh, above, if you like, the city has, has reduced dramatically over 30 years. We were, we're still suffering the suburban and moving out. And in Glasgow, it's only really areas like the Merchant City and the Old Town where you've started to see the creep of residential. Why am I telling you about this? Because this is important about balanced cities. You need a living, working city. You don't just need a city where people come in, work, or come in and holiday. Mm -hmm. You need a core residential population to balance that. So there's a lot of work now on 20-minute cities. The idea that you don't have to go more than 20 minutes to do everything from your city, your flat. And, you know, we have to look critically at our city in Glasgow, which still looks like something that is suffering from the impacts of housing policy of some decades ago and reimagine that city uh, as a different place from a sort of a Monday to Friday business operation and a Friday to Sunday leisure operation. So we need to, to, to rethink those cities as some European cities are already doing. Uh, and in order for us to keep up, we need to make those changes and make some brave moves uh, so that we have a city like Amsterdam, if you like, with a big resident population, a, a strong leisure and business visitation, but also a very strong emphasis on non-motorised transport and, you know, keeping cars to a minimum. We, we really have to take some big steps there in terms of pedestrianisation and greening of the cities. Uh, and, you know, you must move now and you must move fast. Well, it sounds like it's quite a difficult thing to implement then to turn Glasgow into a 20-minute city. But Glasgow has made massive changes in the past. You know, you think about the, the 70s and the 80s when uh, it was amongst the worst, most socially deprived city in Europe. Uh, and then people said, let's form a tourist board, let's have a museum of the Borrell collection, let's generate an exhibition centre. And of course, we were able to make the change from a, a declining manufacturing uh, industrial city into a service economy with a buoyant tourism sector. Nobody said, geez, lads, we'll never be able to complete with, compete with Edinburgh. They're well ahead with us. Instead, we came up with as strong a business and conference and meeting section as Edinburgh has ever had. And, you know, buoyant and different cultural events to Edinburgh. So the idea that it's too late and we can't make this change, I think, flows against what I know about Glasgow and its ability to reinvent itself. But we do need a bit of creative and imaginative intervention at a government level mm. because the, the impact on Glasgow has been acute. And this is the big civic urban destination. This is much bigger than Edinburgh still in terms of the region and the importance of the city centre to the region. And that's why I was trying to call for in that Herald piece, imaginative intervention, because I think it's a clear case because of the, the issues that are illustrated there in the graphs 
about the relative performance of accommodation in Glasgow versus the rest of Scotland, the relative performance of the visitor attractions, the stuff people go and see, mm -hmm. Glasgow versus the rest of Scotland. I, I can prove, I can show with the data that Scottish government uses and verifies that our, our difficulties are greater than the other cities. All the cities are suffering, but this one is suffering the most. How's the Moffat Centre been able to operate, John, over the past 18 months, given that primarily it's about collecting tourist data? How have you been able to operate when there hasn't been any tourists going to these attractions? As always, it's not um, so, so clear cut. So whilst um, you're right, visitor attraction numbers did plummet, remember that we also count outdoor attractions and visitation to gardens, to parks, to national parks, uh, to anywhere where you could get outside uh, and walk around did perform and continued to perform quite well. And indeed, what we're able to show is that many of those attractions with indoor offers, castles, historic houses, they're still challenged by uh, COVID. You know, Stirling Castle, Edinburgh Castle are open, but they're not fully open. You can't get into all of it. So they've had to adjust pricing accordingly. They've had to build reservation slots for people. So if you like, we've been recording that change in visitation and that closure, and that data feeds into uh, the Scottish Tourism Emergency Recovery Group, and indeed to Scottish Government. And it's the only continuous data they've had from 2019 up to now, 2021. Both our stuff for accommodation and for attractions have told them the extent of collapse uh, and the extent of recovery. And, you know, we we compare not just 21 data with 20, but we go back to 19. So you can see what the last normal year looked like along with now. So we've kept going and we've been supplying that data to government and we get pulled into various committees and stakeholder groups, Glasgow Recovery, Economic Leadership, um, Resilience Groups in Glasgow, Chamber of Commerce. So it's in all our interests to get recovery for Glasgow rights. So Moffat's been doing a lot of pro bono inputs to these areas because it's not the time to say, you know, I'll do that, but it's going to cost you uh, £20,000 from GCU. Thanks very much. At the moment, it's about recovery and it's about building a better city and a better future, not just for the students, but also for the, the residents and people who are going to visit the city uh, in years to come, I suppose. Are you working on any research projects at the moment? How long have you got? <laughs> Is there any, any headline stuff, John, anything you'd be happy to talk about? Yeah, so there's been interesting stuff we've been doing, I guess, for tourism recovery in the areas we've been talking about. But we've also been looking at new business developments because there are a couple of uh, uh, new attractions on the horizon. You've got to understand that it, there's a lot of money available internationally. And as you know, the mergers and acquisitions sector has been very busy because the city of London has been very busy awash with cash. And some of that money does come into buying hotels and developing hotels. We've seen a new Irish chain move into Glasgow over the period of the pandemic. And I think for me, there's, there's always somebody who wants a feasibility study. There's always somebody who wants a business plan. Uh, and that's kind of where we come in, looking at the market, 
getting them to understand here's the pandemic effects, but here's what's going to happen in the future. So we've been working with everyone from Cairngorm Funicular Mountain Railway and trying to figure a way for them out, out of their particular difficulties to uh, looking at impacts of satellite launching in remote areas of Scotland. You know, so that you're only as good as your last trick in this job. Uh, and you've got you've to be very open to different stuff. I mean, we've got international stuff hitting us as well uh, in terms of stuff uh, in Ireland uh, and in other parts of Europe. So uh, often you're bound to non-disclosure agreements on this, but I'm seeing it's getting busier, but it's not the typical work that I saw back in 2019 but you've got to be flexible and you've got to adapt. John, that was absolutely fantastic to talk to you today. Thank you so much and I look forward to catching up with you at some point in the future. Good question on the visitor numbers though. Ah, you got yes, that's I forgot to ask. I'm, I'm gonna, I wasn't, I'm, I'm a guy, so I can't multitask, but I'll, I'll, um, I'll get them for you and put them in a chart. I'd also like to thank everyone for listening to this episode and I hope you'll join us again soon where we'll be chatting with another member of staff from Glasgow Caledonian University. In the meantime, make sure you subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode. You'll find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and all good platforms. Until then, I've been Craig Telfer and this has been The Common Good Podcast. Podcast.